0: Entering the Freedom Hut.
1: Trump and Macron have a discussion while he's out there doing the NATO thing. Also, the House GOP has a report out on impeachment. The Inspector General report means that people are running for cover and trying to run interference on both sides. A Peloton ad that's gotten far more attention than it intended to. And uh, liberals don't like Melania's coat. That and more coming up.
2: This is the Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One
3: small family. Make no mistake, America. Great, you're a great American. Again,
0: the Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst, former
3: member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now,
1: welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Sorry, my voice is a little scratchy this morning. Don't really know why. <clears throat> But thank you so much for being here. It's what it's what happens. You do a radio show enough, your vocal cords take a beating. Mine mine are are much abused. It's one of the reasons why on days off I try to talk less. I just look at people and nod my head. Mm hmm, mm hmm. That's great. We got a lot to get to today. NATO, Ooh, NATO, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, been around for quite some time, trying to counter the Soviets. You got Trump sitting down. With uh, Emmanuel Macron, who I will say does remind me. I mean, you could cast him as the snooty French waiter in any movie or TV show. I brought you this ketchup because you're American and you put ketchup on everything. You know what I mean? You could do that. And it would per- it would work perfectly well. You know, doesn't really smile. Doesn't really uh, exude a lot of warmth, but certainly exudes a lot of Frenchness. There's a lot of French coming from this guy. But they're sitting there having a a discussion about NATO. And and here's what the media wants you to believe. Let's start with that. If you're just a casual observer of news channels and newspapers, with, of course, the few exceptions that have not made anti-Trumpism their business model. But if you happen to take a look casually and just see what's going on with NATO, you will read things and see things about how Trump is terrible for NATO. He's been a, a grave threat. In fact, there was a CNN analysis this, mor- this morning. You can't make this stuff up. CNN analysis where he said, or where it was said, that Trump is the biggest threat to NATO. And so there's some irony in the fact that he is holding a meeting with different NATO uh, leaders, including uh, Emmanuel Macron of France. This is very stupid, Uh, This is aggressively stupid, as I was fond of saying in the past, Uh, because, first of all, if anyone thinks that it's a greater threat than Putin, I would really need them to explain that. I also think that the threat that Putin poses to us as a general matter is being exaggerated. I know that I've been telling you for years now, the media, the Democrats are completely willing to skip past the real concern that China poses to us as a a near peer competitor, a country that at some point is going to try to flex uh, flex its muscles and say, sorry, America, you're not the hegemon anymore. You don't get to make that call. Hmm? Russia is a fraction of the Chinese economy and a fraction of the Chinese population. Let's be serious for a moment. Anybody who tells you that Russia is a bigger threat than China doesn't know what they're talking about or is lying. Well, let's get back to. NATO for a moment, shall we? Um, you have the discussion over ISIS fighters that got the most attention this morning from the uh, Macron-Trump meeting. Please, uh, producer Brandon, play clip 12.
2: For me, the very first objective in the region is to finish war against ISIS. And, and, and don't, don't make any mistake. Your number one problem are not the foreign fighters. This is the ISIS fighters in the region. And you have more and more of the fighters due to the situation today.
3: This is why he's a great politician, because that was one of the greatest non-answers I've ever heard. <laughs> and that's okay.
2: Because sometimes there are, there is, if you can have some temptation from the, U- the U.S. side, I don't say about President Trump, but could be the press, to say this is the European responsibility. I'm sorry to say that. We have some of our people. But if you don't look at the reality of the situation that is number one, not to be ambiguous with these groups. This is why we started to discuss about our relations with Turkey. But I think any ambiguity with Turkey vis-a-vis these groups is detrimental to everybody for the situation on the ground.
3: France has actually taken back some fighters. Uh, but we have a lot of fighters. We've captured a lot of people. And we have captured 100% of the caliphate, but you know that that means that it's still that they keep going and going. Uh, we set a small contingent in and we wiped out another portion of isis we don't want to happen uh, to me what happened with president obama where it reformed and then it became stronger than it was in the first place so we don't want that to happen
1: so this is the the primary exchange that everyone was focusing on between these two world leaders today one thing you see here is that the the french and this is true of really all of our european partners uh, with the possible exception of the brits who do punch pretty close to if not at their weight on these matters. We can count on the Brits in a way that we really can't count on other European states. Count on the Aussies, count on the Canadians, uh, but the French, not so much. The European states minus Britain uh, tend to want to have a much bigger say, but much less responsibility in all of these matters. And that's why Trump was poking uh, Macron a bit here with the cameras rolling, knowing that this would perhaps get under the French leaders skin a little bit America is somehow responsible for whatever outcome happens now in Syria this is what you've been led to believe meanwhile we are supposed to be one of many countries to have partnered up to deal with the mess that is Syria and all these people who say oh we should just stay there and stabilize stabilize until what until There's a challenger regime in place to Assad, because that's going to be a pretty picture. That's going to work out really well. Or just stay indefinitely until Assad decides, hey, I want that piece of the country back because I'm the leader, even if you want to pretend I'm not. That doesn't look like it ends well for us. The people that think that we should just stay in Syria haven't really thought this through very much. Uh, They now point to continuing operations against ISIS as somehow proof that we should just stay forever. And I look at this and say, no, we should be trying to remove our troops so that they don't stay forever. And if we're in the last phases of ISIS mop up, then so be it. There's also always risk attendant to any of these moves and maneuvers. But what do the French really bring to the table here? What do they do that is helpful in this process? Well, sure, they're a part of this coalition, and I'm sure they would point to different ways that they have tried to contribute. But we all know that somehow, once again, America is in the leadership role. Oh, you mean that even under President Trump, America is in a leadership role. America is calling the shots, has the greatest degree of responsibility. Really? I thought that Trump abdicated it. I thought Trump was destroying NATO. Wait, you mean Trump got over $100 billion of additional funding from NATO members for their own defense? Remember, we are we are trying to prevent Russian aggression. We also ask the question, and it should be asked much more frequently, what else should NATO be doing? You know what NATO's only mission in recent memory really has been? Afghanistan. What is NATO doing in Afghanistan? Eh, We got a lot of allies. We got this fancy NATO thing. I guess we better use it. How has Afghanistan worked out with this multi-country coalition meant to stabilize it? How many of you listening right now either served yourselves or have friends, family members, loved ones who have served in Afghanistan to come back and say, that's not going to be whatever the policymakers think it's going to be? I'm willing to bet almost all of them, probably all of them. Anybody who served in a frontline unit there knows it's not going to be some stable democracy. We're not going to be able to point to this thing and say, yes, another NATO success. But even to ask these questions is treated as being Putin's puppet. This is what they say. Oh, you're putting out Russian propaganda. Do they realize or do they care? Do the leftists who hate Trump and the media acolytes of the Democratic Party pretending to be nonpartisan, do they care that making Russia into America's enemy number one hurts us in a number of ways? It hurts us with regard to fighting against Islamic radicalism, where Russia is, in fact, an ally. It hurts us with trying to get the Russians to play nicer and more with more diplomacy on the European states on their periphery. We have a lot in common with Russia In certain areas, in others, we don't. They view us as oppositional. The Russian mentality is very much that they are. They view themselves as surrounded. We view Russia as vast, 11 time zones. It's huge. They think of themselves, though, as surrounded by hostile states. They have to look on their periphery and see NATO to the west, see China and Japan to the east and southeast, and then even India pushing up from their south, from the underbelly. Russia doesn't view itself as in some strategically sound position. Russia views itself as a victim of geopolitical circumstances, and in the post-Soviet era, even more so. Now, I'm not saying they're correct or that's right or that's helpful, but we should at least understand what the mentality is and try to work within that reality. Does anyone really want to go to war with Russia? Better question. Would anyone in the Democrat press right now, which is really just the press, uh, would they want to send their children— To go fight on the front lines of Estonia if there was a Russian incident involving Maskarovka. I'm not talking about all the tanks rolling in. I'm saying some separatist movement where they all happen to speak Russian. And some of you know there are, in fact, many people in the Baltic states for whom Russian is their first language. There are whole communities there. Would not be that hard for this to happen. Are we going to get involved in that fight? Now, you can say, yes, you can take that position, but we should at least be able to have that discussion without the idiots in the media. And I've realized now the media really is full of people who have decided that it's not worthwhile to do anything useful. It's much better for them to just try to be in the cool kid club all the time, to do whatever they have to do to impress the corporate executives who can sign over paychecks that are far bigger than what they would deserve if they weren't working for legacy media outlets. They don't care how stupid they look on these issues and how much they push us with their belligerence in the reporting closer and closer to an actual conflict with Russia, which would be horrific, by the way. now remember, it's President Trump who blew up a couple of hundred Russian paramilitaries in the Syrian desert in order to protect our Kurdish allies, I might add. And Russia let that one go. We don't want to keep having close calls with the Russian state to say that we should aim for better relations with Russia is so obvious that it shouldn't have to be said. But in our current environment, you hear the narrative. Trump is destroying NATO. Trump is Putin's puppet. Anything that deviates from that, any any facts you can present that don't go along with that narrative makes you a bad person. You're an idiot. You don't know anything. This is what the media will tell you. But hold on a second. What what bad thing has happened to NATO? Well, name one bad thing that has happened to NATO because of Trump since he became the president. A few NATO bureaucrats, a few European uh, institutionalist types decided that it was he was a little gruff when he was asking for more money. Okay, guess what? States paid up more money and they said they would. That was the agreement that we had. NATO is nothing other than an agreement, in fact. So when some states can say, yeah, we'll do this, and then they don't do it, doesn't that undermine the very core of what holds it all together? But there's no, there's never any discussion about any of this. That's honest. It's just everything is about bashing Trump. Nothing can be separate from bashing Trump. These people, this is the totalitarian mindset. And you go back, you see the way it was in the Soviet Union. If you were in any way opposing the Soviet state, You were a counter-revolutionary and therefore you were to be nullified, you were to be destroyed. For the media right now, they have a Soviet mentality about Trump, especially because we're in this re-election cycle now. You're either trying to destroy President Trump or you're evil, you're part of the problem. Every issue, every news story, doesn't matter what it is. Even when we're talking about things like conflict, possibly, between nuclear-armed states, they're reckless about this stuff. Putin's puppet. Oh, Russia. More sanctions on Russia. More tough talk against Russia. Really? How far do we really want to push that? Obama didn't push really much at all, by the way. He got real tough with Russia at the end of his presidency. We wouldn't have to deal with it. Didn't want to send those javelin missiles. Did the whole expulsion of Russian diplomats and added sanctions after he was going to be out of office and wasn't his problem anymore. Real, really easy to be tough then when you don't have to be the one. That looks into the eyes of parents who have lost their child because of the stupidity of much older and allegedly wiser elected officials who think they know what they're doing. But really, it's all about them in this whole process. It's not about NATO. It's about defeating Trump. There are people who want power. The narrative of NATO that you are being told every day has been completely misconstrued, distorted. And perverted as a club yet again against the president of the United States. And it is not based in reality. Just remember that as you see all of this playing out.
3: Well, I haven't asked that to the president today. I have over the period of time. We have uh, a tremendous amount of captured fighters, ISIS fighters, over in Syria. And uh, they're all under lock and key. But many are from France, many are from Germany, and many are from UK. They're mostly from Europe. And some of the countries are agreeing. I have not spoken to the president about that. Uh, would you like some nice ISIS fighters? you. I can give them. You can take take
2: everyone you want. Let's be serious. Uh, The very large number of fighters you have on the ground are ISIS fighters coming from Syria, from Iraq, and the region. It is true that you have foreign fighters coming from Europe, but this is a tiny minority of the overall problem we have in the region. And I think number one priority, because it's not yet finished, is to get rid of ISIS and the terrorist groups. This is our number one priority. And it's not yet done. I'm sorry to say that. Yes, you, you still have fighters in this region, in Syria and now in Iraq, and more and more. And the whole destabilization of the region makes the situation more difficult to fix the situation against ISIS.
1: So, who's going to be responsible for all those fighters we have on the ground? You have all these people that say that they know what to do in Syria, they know what the end game is, really thousands and thousands of prisoners. What happens to them? They've all been radicalized one way or another. Maybe some of them now would claim that they've turned on the Islamic State because it has crumbled. But anyone who would fight for a jihadist army that engages in mass torture, uh, enslavement, rape, mutilation and murder, it's not somebody you're going to want to let go anytime soon. Who takes all the ISIS fighters? Well... Isn't it nice to have a president who looks at some of the world leaders who are our allies, places like France? And I do love France and the French people, by the way, as much as I love to make fun of them, Brandon. They're also it's a beautiful culture with great food. Uh, That all said, sometimes a little bit of tough love is necessary in diplomacy. Sometimes pushing our allies a little bit to do things they don't necessarily want to do means that we have to do less. And therefore, oh, that's right. It's America first, isn't it? our interests should be pursued that doesn't mean at the exclusion of uh, being helpful and keeping our word to our allies but it does mean that there's a whole nother way to approach these issues you get more funding out of NATO members maybe you also get some NATO members like France to take back anybody who's a French citizen who's an Isis fighter how about that for a crazy idea
3: I think it's very unpatriotic of the Democrats to put on a performance where they do that. I do. I think it. I think it's a bad thing for our country. Impeachment wasn't supposed to be used that way. Uh, all you have to do is read the transcripts. You'll see there was absolutely nothing done wrong. They had legal scholars looking at the transcripts the other day, and they say these are absolutely perfect. Trump is right when he uses the word Those concepts, those, those calls that we made, two of them, were absolutely perfect calls. And I think it's a very bad thing for our country. Does it cast a cloud? Well, if it does, then the Democrats have done a very great disservice to the country, which they have.
1: The Democrats have done a disservice to the country, but they're not stopping. They don't care about the disservice they are doing. And so we have to now sit through this Judiciary Committee nonsense on Wednesday. Another Kabuki theater attack Trump extravaganza. We have our friend Raheem Kassam. Joining us now, he is the co-host of the podcast called War Room, which is on impeachment and related political matters. You can check that out on iTunes. Raheem, great to have you back, sir. Hey, thanks for having me, Buck. All right. So let's before we get into your expectations, and I know you're you're, you're doing your show with with Miller and with Bannon. So you guys are neck deep in this impeachment thing all the time. But but before we get to what your expectations are for Wednesday. How do you assess what's happened so far? Is this have Democrats just been stumbling left and right? Or do we not
4: really know what their strategy is? I don't think they quite know what their strategy is, but they they went into this whole process. They were effectively sold a a bit of a fantasy by this uh, so-called whistleblower, the fantasy didn't turn out to be reality. We heard from the whistleblower very early on in this process that there were things on the phone call between President Trump and President Zelensky, which when the transcript was published, they weren't in there okay so the democrats then had to pivot and they said well we're going to bring all these witnesses in we're going to bring people who are familiar with the president's thinking we're going to bring people who were familiar with the call who were on the call themselves let them elaborate on this and then they brought all of these witnesses in first in adam schiff's star chamber in the in the secretive basement skiff of the capitol building then matt gates goes in and says you can't do this privately you have to do this publicly this is you're talking about attacking a democratically elected president do it in public so then they have to pivot again, start doing it in public, and in public, despite all the remonstrations of CNN and The New York Times, actually none of the witnesses corroborated what the whistleblower's original statement was, and none of the uh, witnesses actually set out anything that was uh, illegal, that was unconstitutional, that was an abuse of the president's power. And so now the Democrats are having to pivot again. Uh, this week, we're hearing that Nancy Pelosi is is quietly uh, attempting to build a new impeachment case around things other than Ukraine, going back to the Mueller report, going back to the Russia collusion hoax. And of course, Jerry Nadler, who got ripped up by by Corey uh, Lewandowski uh, um, in, in an earlier uh, uh, hearing earlier this year, you know, you, you've seen how this chairman of the Judiciary Committee crumbles under pressure also. And I happen to believe, therefore, that after Wednesday, the Democrats are again going to have to pivot. And I think they've May even be looking at removing, uh, withdrawing themselves from the impeachment stuff and moving just onto a censure vote against President Trump and leaving it at that because this is really harming them. It's harming them in their 31 swing districts. They have to win next year. It's harming their presidential candidates uh, in, the, in, the, in their primary. And it's really taking a toll on uh, on Nancy Pelosi and how the base views Nancy Pelosi um, because she was seen to be pulling the line or, or towing the line of Rashida Tlaib and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and the rest of the squad. And it makes her look not a leader of her party, but a follower of the far-left element. So I don't think they know what their strategy is. Now,
1: I know your podcast is War Room. Let's war game, if we can, for a moment here. This major decision that you you, uh, got into, you alluded to briefly about the possibility of Democrats just doing a censure vote. Mm. Wouldn't that then be viewed? And by the way, I'm always a I'm always somebody who says nobody can predict the future. I'm. I would put my certainty that they will impeach at high, but who knows? And as you're pointing out, this thing is not going. There's no way that Nancy Pelosi thought that this would be where it is right now. And I think that that much is, is clear. If they do a censure vote only, isn't that then going into a reelection cycle, essentially an admission that this was all just political nonsense and that they didn't have the goods on them, though? You know, how do you how do you view that component of it? I mean, at least if they go to the mat, Rahim, Pelosi can say we impeached. We did what we can.
4: Yes, yeah, she could say that, um, but then remember, the public will be uh, able to see and view and read everything that comes out in the Senate trial, uh, there will be cross-examination and cross-examination, cross there will be representations um, at the very highest level on all of that, so she might even want to avoid that process. If she goes for a censure over the, uh, overseeing the impeachment process, so at least she can say, well, look, uh we got a lot of very serious information of very uh, serious players uh, all these unelected bureaucrats who are great patriots and everything that she wants to say about them. And and we had to, we were obligated to take them at their word and have this process out. But it turned out that the evidence was not an impeachable offense, although it was an offense that the president should be censured over. And we take our constitutional, uh, um, you know, we take our constitutional um, uh, obligations very seriously. And therefore, that's why we're not pursuing this. Um, but if you want a president who's not going to be censured for doing uh, things on the the international stage that they shouldn't be doing, then you vote for one of our guys next time. So it's six of one and half a dozen of the other, as far as Nancy Pelosi is concerned. What she is probably more concerned about, more than actually losing face over the impeachment process, is actually losing power over her own party. So she's trying to weigh and measure right now. Is there the appetite for a full-blown impeachment um, trial out there? Are these 31 Democrats in the swing districts going to side with her, or are they going to actually vote a different way? Are they going to distance themselves from uh, party leadership, uh, House leadership? Over this, or can she do something that pleases all sides? Which you know might be a censure vote.
1: What would be the game changer from the Democrat side? You think that would be a realistic possibility on this Wednesday hearing? I mean, I saw the list of some of the witnesses, Raheem. It's as though they're trying to put the American people to sleep. It's it's uh, a constitutional law professors. That, that doesn't seem to me like it's going to move the needle. What could move the needle from You know, what, what is Nadler going to try to do? Or is he just going to repeat everything we've already heard and hope that the repetition itself
4: becomes the argument? Well, so one of the things we're doing, or I'm doing as part of my role of the War Room podcast, is going through every single document. And yesterday you had the um, Republican minority report released. There's 123 pages, and going through all of that, you can see why Republican counsel Steve Castor um, wasn't playing up to the cameras in those public hearings over the last couple of weeks. He was actually producing an evidentiary case. Because guess what? When it goes to a Senate trial, there needs to be an evidentiary record of what happened um, with Ukraine. There needs to be an evidentiary record of what happened with all these phone calls and text messages and WhatsApps, etc, etc. It's one thing, which is what the Democrat Council was doing, to, to try and pump up headlines and get CNN to run funky chirons about, you know, what this witness says is an impeachable offense or what this witness uh, implies happened between Ambassador Sondland and uh, uh, David Holmes on a terrace at a restaurant in Ukraine after a bottle of wine. You know, that's one thing. But the other thing is producing the evidentiary record. So now what they're doing in the Judiciary Committee is they are trying to backpedal it away from the media grabbing headlines, putting up constitutional law professors, uh, lends more towards producing an evidentiary record or at least producing evidence to show that the president has somehow overstepped his constitutional role. That's why they're getting all boring with this. They know they're losing the, the fight as it res- as it pertains to the granularity and the detail um, of this impeachment process process. Um, I think the big game changer is going to be this. Look, uh, if, if the Republicans manage um, to show and to have any doubt cast from any of these witnesses uh, that say, look, maybe you disagree with the president's foreign policy and the way he went about the foreign policy, but do you see any evidence of wrongdoing? Then that will be a second hit. Um, they did it the last time with all these other witnesses. Remember, none of them were able to say at the end of the day, this was a directly impeachable offense. They just said, oh, I didn't quite like it. It didn't really fit in my, with my worldview. If they managed to get this out of the next set of witnesses, that's two strikes. Nancy Pelosi will then have a, 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 a third attempt at bat, to do something different it might be a censure vote it might be pursuing a full trial but then you know she's out
1: raheem kassam everybody he is a co-host of the war room podcast with jason miller and steve bannon they are diving deep into this every day raheem before we let you go real quick i'm just wondering brexit what's going on because it's been getting some headlines here and there and then it kind of faded because the media is so obsessed with anti-trumpism where does it stand right now
4: Yeah, it also probably faded because we have a general election in the UK now coming up on December the 12th. Um, This is an election that's been called because there is a deadlock in Parliament. They can't get things going either way. Uh, And so it looks like Boris Johnson is going to be uh, elected with a big parliamentary majority, an 80-class seat parliamentary majority. And therefore, by January the 31st, he will be able to take Britain out of the European Union, not perhaps in the greatest way that some of us hardline Brexiteers like myself and Nigel Farage would have liked, but it still will be a leave by january the 31st and i'm optimistic about that less optimistic about pro-amnesty liberal boris johnson being prime minister for the next five years but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it well looks like
1: brexit might actually be happening isn't that kind of amazing because the elite media seems to have thought that they'd be able to just change this by telling us that it's so bad
4: nothing more powerful
1: than the will of the people Raheem Kassam, everybody. War Room is the podcast. It's on iTunes. Check it out. Raheem, thanks so much, my friend.
4: Thank you, Doug.
5: We rolled back the Obama administration's uh, cuddling up to Cuba by applying heavy new sanctions. We recognize that engagement has not improved Cuba's regime. It hasn't made it better. The human rights record was worse. Uh, The risk to the Cuban people was worse and the risk to the United States was worse and their capacity to influence Venezuela even greater. So we've changed that. We've allowed Americans to seek justice by suing the regime in Havana uh, to recover property that it stole a long time ago. It only makes sense when Americans had their stuff stolen to give them a chance to get it back. And we've applauded countries that have expelled uh, Cubans who have come to live uh, as doctors inside of their borders who were really working on behalf of the government. Uh, These doctors, this is a program that's hard to fathom sometimes. They send doctors to countries uh, all around the world. Uh, They traffic uh, to generate income for the cuban leadership so the doctors receive 10 or 20 percent of the revenue that they generate and the rest goes to fund the cuban regime
1: cozying up to dictators right that's what you always hear about trump from the mainstream media and yet when you look back at the record of the president that was elevated by the media as some kind of god king barack obama uh turns out that he had quite a fondness in action as a matter of policy for uh, dictators and regimes that do not deserve anything in terms of concessions from America. You see, this is where they always blur the lines. You look at what's going on with North Korea. President Trump has tried to so far unsuccessfully, and let's be honest, but has tried to create the uh, the basic per- interpersonal framework for some kind of a grand bargain with North Korea. Have any of the sanctions been lifted on North Korea? No. In fact, the sanctions are stronger than they've ever been. Has there been any concession made to North Korea as a matter of policy? Do we not still board their ships on the high seas and make sure that they're not engaged in illegal trade, particularly contraband, black market trade for missiles and other aspects of the of the arms trade? Make sure they're not selling... Anything in violation of the crippling sanctions on the country. No, we still do all of that. All Trump has done is said or spoken about Kim Jong-un, said some weird things, no question, but spoken about him and spoken to him. With Iran, the Obama administration came along and said, hey, so you don't have to do anything that's really difficult for you. And we're going to give you we're actually going to deliver to you huge pallets of U.S. cash which you can then fund your terror regime with. And we're going to make sure that neither the Israelis nor anybody else would be able to make a strike on your nuclear facilities because you'll be under the aegis, you'll be under the protection of this international deal that the Obama administration with European countries that have a long legacy of failure in the Middle East thought was a good idea. That's giving stuff. For nothing in return. We got nothing in return from Iran. They have centrifuges that they could turn on. They could turn them off. That doesn't. That's not enough. That's not a concession. With Cuba, you had the same situation. The Obama administration has decided we've we've been mean enough to Cuba for long enough. There's really no reason for us to take the approach that we have to do anything about Cuba anymore. Or we should do a lot less. Let's be buddy, buddy. With Cuba, with Castro's dictatorship, um, which continues, by the way, to be a an enormous thorn in our side, not just in when it comes to Cuban specific policy, uh, but also with countries like Venezuela, wherever the worst elements, the worst political elements are operating, you know, the Marxist, communist, socialist, revolutionary types in the Western Hemisphere and here in North and South America or anywhere. for that matter, you can often find the hand of the Cuban regime. They are running a totalitarian prison camp on that island, and they love to export that anywhere else they can. And they also like to leverage relationships with other brutal dictatorial types in order to stay in power themselves. Venezuela being a very good example of that, despite the jack ryan movie where the the hero in venezuela is the female social justice warrior yeah that's really the and the bad guys are those right-wing military types yeah they're the scary type or or maybe the bad guy is a social justice warrior named maduro who's destroyed that country and been responsible for unimaginable deprivation and misery and despair uh, but Cuba's a bad a bad regime. Didn't get any better, despite the concessions, the, uh, the extended hand from the Obama administration. Because ultimately, there's just an ideological affinity for Cuba that comes from the left in this country. In America, we have a lot of people who are Democrats, but they're really socialists. And they see socialists trying so hard to bring about that utopian society on the island of Cuba. And yeah, they can admit that it hasn't gone according to plan, but they still... Harbor this fondness for them. Socialists tend to like other socialists is the really straightforward way to look at this. And that's what we're dealing with, what we were dealing with, with the Obama administration in Cuba. Secretary of State Pompeo seems to be setting it right now. You won't see much of uh, the media covering this, though, will you? Because it would be yet another Obama administration foreign policy failure that has to be set right by the Trump administration. I understand it can be a little bit awkward when you have to think about life insurance. You don't want to have to consider what would be unthinkable, but you have to prepare for an uncertain future and make sure that your family is safe and secure. I've gone through this process myself. It's something you need to do, and you should go to the place that makes it easy for you. No hassle. That's Ethos Life Insurance. Ethos is modern life insurance for people who just don't want to waste time with fine print extra appointments or fees they really just can't afford. Ethos has a simple approach. They take industry expertise and they blend it with technology so that you can find the right policy to protect your loved ones in just a matter of about 10 minutes. And you can apply online. You should check it out for yourself. You'll be taking the first steps to ensure that your family has the financial security they need in case of the unexpected. This is the responsible thing to do. Get a fast, free, and personalized quote right now at ethoslife.com. That's ethoslife.com. Life insurance that actually fits your life. We are on the final countdown for the inspector general report from the FBI DOJ on possible FISA abuse. FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, meant to catch spies and terrorists and somehow deployed against Carter Page who you could say is among the most unlikely assets of a foreign government you could find anywhere. Carter Page, who was a cooperative witness and uh, just a all-around helpful guy to the FBI to nail some other Russians before. So if you're already on the FBI's radar and you've had to help them, In another case involving possible intelligence activities of a foreign government against the United States, are you going to try to get the Russians to meddle in a presidential election? Get to coordinate with a presidential campaign? This is something that only delusional or stupid people could believe. And yet, guess what? When that Inspector General report comes out next week... There will be a whole lot of people who are claiming that it exonerates the FBI, that it means nothing was done wrong, even though Carter Page had a FISA collection done on him, which to any normal, any sane person is obviously absurd. Um, I will still never forget when Carter Page sat next to me, And uh, this was before I interviewed him the first time, and he told me that he met my dad at an event in New York City, of all things. And my dad was like, "Who?" (laughs) But Carter Page. It turned out he actually did meet him briefly. They shook hands or something. Uh, But it was quite a quite an interesting moment. What a small world we live in. Uh, Carter Page is not a Russian spy. In fact, there was never even an allegation. Of any criminal. They couldn't even concoct a theory of criminal wrongdoing against Carter Page. And yet a U.S. citizen had all of his communications, cell phone records, emails, text messages, all of that just just grabbed by the federal government because a few FBI agents were hysterical around this conspiracy theory that was really coming from the Hillary Clinton campaign. That's let me skip to the end of the story for all of you. What we will find out, and I think we'll find out from the Durham report, I'm not sure if it'll be before or after the 2020 election, though. Remember, this is Inspector General Horowitz at the DOJ-FBI. What we will find out from the Attorney uh, U.S. Attorney Durham, who is a lawyer's lawyer, a prosecutor's prosecutor, according to both sides of the aisle up to this point, what you'll find out from him eventually is that the Hillary Clinton campaign got this whole thing started. That this whole Russia, 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 it really had its origins in the Hillary Clinton campaign, that this was a Hillary info up against Trump and that because people are such wild eyed left wing partisans, because Democrats have become such petty totalitarians, they seized on this and then abused their power in whatever ways they could, either in the press or in the government to run with this theory, to pursue this theory, to really almost overturn the results of an election based on this theory. And it came from the Clinton camp very early on. That is my prediction to you as to where all of this is heading, although it'll be some time before we get there. What are we going to find out about the inspector general report? Well, let's just remember a few things before we. Before we do our uh, our pregame analysis here of everything, let's remember that the uh, inspector general, in this case Horowitz, was an Obama appointee who oversaw a 500 plus page report on Hillary Clinton's emails that was absolutely full of political bias. And Horowitz concluded, as if by magic, That all of that bias in no way affected the decisions that the Department of Justice made about Hillary Clinton's emails. I am here to tell you, and you won't want to hear this probably, I'm here to tell you that you should get ready for round two of this. What you will likely see in this Inspector General report is a whole lot of dubious decision making, just like with the press, Right. The press gets stories wrong, but the stories they get wrong are overwhelmingly are overwhelmingly. I would even argue entirely when it pertains to Trump, anti-Trump. It's always anti-Trump stories. You will see that the mistakes that the decision making at the FBI and, you know, FBI's within DOJ, but I'll use these go back and forth over these, that the decisions made in the Department of Justice about this. FISA warrant and this baseline theory that the Trump campaign was somehow colluding with Russia, the decisions made through all of that, um, the truth is, my friends, that they were all somehow negative. The bad decisions were negative for Trump. It doesn't mean it was illegal, but you know, the tie goes to the runner. Well, the tie goes to the to the anti-Trump deep state here every time. That's what's going to happen. So you'll see this pattern of yeah, we got to get this FISA. Yeah, we got to we got to do whatever we got to do. We got to stack it with the dossier. No one verifies anything. In the dossier it turns out the dossier is all crap, and it's a Hillary Clinton opposition document. You're going to include that? Oh, but you know, the excuse there is that the FBI agents involved were lazy and stupid enough to believe the dossier. Eh, okay, they're not bad people. They're just dumb and lazy. That's going to be the excuse. Implicit in what comes out in this report. That's what they're going to to fall back on. The bureaucracy you see is not tainted. It's just inept. It's just not very good at what it's supposed to do. But that they can live with.
3: You know, that's
1: the cost of doing business. Hmm. Isn't that interesting? There is uh, one wild card in this scenario, though. You see, they know that they can count on Horowitz to be an institutionalist, to be somebody who wants to defend the the edifice of the Department of Justice. It's so easy to convince yourself if you work in these government agencies. I worked for the CIA, man. I know it's so easy to say, well, even if we colored a little bit outside the lines here, even if this looks a little shady and shakes the faith of the American people that these Bureaucrats who are empowered for very specific ends do, in fact, abuse those ends for partisan reasons. We still really need these places. We really need the Department of Justice. We need the FBI. We need all these different 17 members of the intelligence community. And because we need them, if we have to give them more than the benefit of the doubt, If we have to look the other way at what a reasonable, a rational person would understand as malfeasance, well, then that's just the price of protecting these institutions. Now, notice this is different than even somebody inside the bureaucracy who is left wing, who is ideologically willing to, you know, the Loretta Lynch approach. Yeah, I'm going to meet with Bill Clinton on the tarmac. Pretend it was a non sequitur conversation, who cares, all an accident, you know. I don't know what was said there, but she didn't want anyone else to know either. There are ideologues inside the bureaucracy, people that clearly take the power that they have to try to help Team Democrat, help the left, help the socialists inside this country, because they are the party of the state. But then you just have people who are not necessarily, and I don't know enough about Horowitz to make the determination as to which one of these camps he falls into, although he'll be in one of them. And we know this because of the, the Hillary email report was a giant, a monument to political bias. Political bias everywhere. That's clear. But did that bias affect the decision making? This would be like somebody saying to you. Hey, uh, you know, this federal judge who's presiding over this case, he's on tape the week before he started presiding over the trial, uh, saying that the defendant is a moron, an idiot, smells bad, terrible. But even though all of the judgments during the case made by the judge went against this defendant, we have no clear evidence that the bias that the judge established beforehand Influenced any of those decisions? That's this. That is exactly what the DOJ did with Hillary's emails. Now you would probably say to me, Buck, hold on a second. A federal judge would have to recuse himself. Oh, you mean like Loretta Lynch recused herself? By the way, as the as the Attorney General from the Hillary. Oh no, she never recused herself from that, did she? Remember how the Democrats play the game? Remember how we play? We have all these Republicans who are the the these little. Uh, suck-ups in the classroom who run around Oh, I, I never I never play rough Oh, will the teacher give me a pat on the head You know, they tend to be never-Trumpers And this is what they do They run around Oh, how could we be so so harsh with the other side While the other side is just pounding our faces Into the pavement all the time That's how the left plays the game And we walk around Oh, we have people on our side Why are we being so Why does Trump say the mean things about the Democrats I'm glad somebody does It's about time But they don't recuse themselves from these things. They want to make sure they maintain control and they can keep the pressure on their opponents. This is what you're going to see play out once again, though. The judge who says he hates somebody, then is in the trial, makes every decision against that person. But at the end of the day, you can claim you can't prove that the judge made all those decisions because he hated the person. Right. This is what. You're going to see in this inspector general report. This is my prediction for you. There'll be some, yeah, someone changed some stuff here, but you know they changed stuff to make the warrant, the FISA warrant uh, application stronger, uh, which is negative for Trump, of course, and the Trump campaign than it would have otherwise been. And you know maybe they didn't do as much due diligence. They kind of rammed through all this stuff just so they could get the FISA going. Because remember, what if, what if things had turned out a little bit differently? We always think about Russia collusion and the possibility that using Carter Page would have been a way to backdoor get access to anyone that in the Trump campaign orbit that he had spoken to and any information he may have about this alleged Russia collusion. But what if they had found something else? What if there was some other. Uh, criminality or or collusion of some kind Uh, what, what if there were campaign finance anything that they could have found in this whole process look at how they went after Manafort look at how they're going after Roger Stone you think they would have overlooked this was a way to get a fantastic wide open access to somebody in constant contact with the Trump campaign and different senior members of that campaign and to do so on a fishing expedition And to think that it would all be kept secret, by the way, which, as we know now, it will not be. This is a perfect way to bring down a presidential campaign or to bring down a president. And this is what the other side did. Um, But there is one wrinkle in the left's plans here, because, like I said, Horowitz, Horowitz will not will not allow for there to be any real consequences or accountability for the FBI. Won't allow it. It's not going to happen. Doesn't matter what's there. He already said Lisa Page showed us that we can't really trust the FBI or raises, I forget the verbiage, raises core issues of trust in the FBI. We already know that's there. But now we look at the rest of them. We say to ourselves, hold on a second. They're going to present us with all this evidence of bias and wrongdoing. And then they're going to claim that there was no bias or wrongdoing. That's that's what's going to happen here again, isn't it? And the answer is yes. That's what I'm telling you to get ready for. But there's one problem. Uh, They're not the only ones who get to shape the narrative here. There's another individual, as you know, one of my favorites in the administration, another individual out there who knows this game very well and probably saved Trump's presidency, although we don't often talk about it that way. Because he knows the ambush that the left had had set for this president. He understands what they were doing. He knows what the dirty politics were. And that man is Attorney General Barr. The story in The Washington Post says it all, my friends. Barr disputes key inspector general finding about FBI's Russia investigation. This is from The Washington Post. We know exactly what's going on here. This is the story published yesterday. Attorney General William P Barr has told the associates he disagrees with the Justice Department's Inspector General on one of the key findings in an upcoming report that the FBI had enough information in July 2016 to justify launching an investigation into members of the Trump campaign, according to people familiar with the matter. The Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz is due to release his long-awaited findings But behind the scenes of the DOJ, disagreement is serviced about one of Horowitz's central conclusions on the origins of the Russia investigation. The discord could be the prelude to a major fissure within financial law enforcement on the controversial question of investigating a presidential campaign. Barr has not been swayed by Horowitz's rationale for concluding that the FBI had sufficient basis to open an investigation on July 31st, 2016. My friends, this is is the Achilles heel of the whole situation. What have I been saying to you now for years? Mueller didn't even touch this. Why? How did this whole thing get started? Where did this come from? Uh, Oh, we're to believe that they just happened to have people near Papadopoulos, but Papadopoulos happened to say a thing that... Please, we're not idiots. They had set up to get Papadopoulos before... This conversation he allegedly had with Downer in a bar in the UK, I believe Papa Dopp is running for a Congress, by the way. Hmm. Yes, that's what they, they believe that uh, they, they want us to believe that Mm-mm. bar knows this is going to be the critical question. Uh, There will be all this information presented and people who are very invested in this will tell you they will feign stupidity. They will feign an abject lack of judgment. And they will say to you that the Russia collusion investigation was a duly predicated investigation from the start, meaning that there was something other than political malice as the real motivation for looking into all of this. Barr is going to look at this. According to this report, and I believe it, and say, not so fast. You're going to investigate a presidential campaign based on what a very low-level a- advisory member of the campaign says to a guy in a bar in the UK. You're going to do. You're going to make that call. You're then going to get FISA on another low-level member of an advisory board of the Trump campaign. Really. And you're going to act like that's fair? I mean, look, you know, you have people that walk into police stations across the country and say that, you know, Elvis is in their shower and Osama bin Laden is hiding under their bed. If you sent in a SWAT team, kicked in the front door, and shot a couple of people because you're doing a raid to find Elvis and Osama, people would want to ask some questions. Like, what the heck are you doing? That is going to be what we are faced with by the FBI now, they were going to want us to believe they made stupid decisions in good faith, not because of politics, and Barr is going to look at them, it sounds like, and say, not so fast. We know what you were up to. This whole thing was, in fact, a hoax, an ambush, and a scam. So people were making a lot of jokes about Bloomberg getting into the race at this point, and it turns out that... uh, Mayor Bloomberg has jumped into, in a very crowded field, fifth place, according to what the most recent poll I've seen right away. He's at like 6%, ahead of Kamala Harris. It tells you a lot about uh, the media's love affair with the Harris campaign. Is uh, That's going to have to come to an end at some point. There is really just no way that anyone's going to be able to continue to pretend that she is, as she once referred to herself, a top-tier candidate. Uh, she is not a top tier candidate, but this is what the uh, messages that we're getting from. Uh, we're getting from the Democrat voters who are being polled here. They all know one thing and one thing only. They don't want Trump to be president. After that, it gets very hazy for a lot of them, because no person could look anyone else in the eye with seriousness and say, yeah. Joe Biden's the great. Joe Biden, the future of America. I mean, there was a a cartoon circulating yesterday where somebody, a brilliant cartoonist created this little cartoon to set the joe biden yeah and i got hair on my legs and my legs are the blonde hair and the hair is sticking up sticking up staring at the sky sun shining down on the legs little kids hopping around jumping on my lap i love it because my blonde leg hair's like all crazy straight and then it's not and then it's a, you know it's like flying around my head and i'm crazy some guy created a video of it and it was it was amazing It really was. Um, uh, I wish I could show. I mean, I I wish those of you who are just listening on audio, we could show it to you. Um, But it was uh, stunning. It was uh, stunning to watch because this is the person. We're in a country of of over 320 million people. And the best the Democrats can do is this really old, not very bright, weird guy with some uh, corruption issues that should get a little more investigation, I think. You know, I I think all, all of that is fair. This guy's going to be the next president of the United States. He's going to be the one with the nuclear codes. We've been told for years, Trump is not fit for office. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Joe Biden is fit for office. I had uh, seen references to the infamous corn pop showdown. But I realized yesterday that we had not addressed the corn pop issue here on the show. And I feel like I am I am remiss as a result, because in that same campaign stop, where he's we're a hair. Of my leg is blonde and it sticks in the sky and the sun in my eye and seven little chipmunks sitting on a branch eating a lot of acorns. You know what I'm talking about? Um, he also talked about his fight with at the public pool, the terrifying gang leader known as Corn Pop. Let us revisit this, shall we? Play clip one.
6: I learned a lot. And I learned that uh, it makes a difference. This was the diving board area, and I was one of the guards, and there weren't a lot of, it was a three meter board. And if you fell off sideways, you landed on the the darn cement over there. And Corn Pop was a bad dude. And he ran a bunch of bad boys. And I did. Yeah, he, and back in those days, to show how things have changed, one of the things you had to use, if you use pomade in your hair, you had to wear a bathing cap. And so he was up on the board, wouldn't listen to me. I said, hey, Esther, you, off the board, or I'll come up and drag you off. Well, he came off, and he said, I'll meet you outside. My car, this was mostly, these were all public housing behind it. My car, there was a gate out here. I parked my car outside the gate. And I, he said, I'll be waiting for you. He was waiting for three guys in straight razors. Not a joke. I just I have to
1: note that here you have Joe Biden, who I, I've heard giving speeches before. And I've, I've actually I actually went to a, a speech where a number of Democrat, like third tier Democrat candidates back in 2008 were giving speeches. And Joe Biden was one of them because he was right there with Kucinich. And I don't even remember who else for people that had no shot of winning the presidency. But now he should be president. They tell you because they got nothing else. They got nobody else on the bench. That's the problem. They got all these candidates. Nobody that anyone's excited about. But I, just, I noticed that, yeah, there's a guy named Corn Pop and Corn Pop had a bunch of bad dudes. Is am I, am I the only one who picks up? He's like a little like a little bit of a southern accent creeps into Joe Biden when he's trying to be a little folksy. I'm not making it. The guy's from Delaware. He's got as much of an accent as I do. Yeah, you know, corn pop was three meters up on the board, and you know, when I was there, corn pop got the ding in the hair and the bumpy puppy bumpy and the boopity poop and uh, you know, I'm just talking like this because I like to talk like that. This is Joe Biden, everybody. This is how Joe Biden's talking. All of a sudden, I mean, you know, it reminds me of Hillary. Hillary got away with this too, what? But she was that. Like, I'm so I'm so done tired. My feet done hurt. This was Hillary. I was like. When when did, when did Hillary all of a sudden? And if you go back and look at clips of her, because, you know, she kind of actually has like more of a Midwestern thing. If you really listen to her, her intonation is, by the way, all the Midwestern people listening to this right now are booing the crap out of me. That's all right. I, my Midwestern accent is not good. I agree. But she did do that sometimes. Joe Biden's doing it here, too. They're these politicians. Remember Joe Biden? I'll put y'all back in chains, Joe Biden said. Oh. Yeah, so. This is the, the the Corn Pop showdown. First of all, I mean, even in the 50s, do we really think that there was some nefarious character who carried around straight razors and threatened people in public places named Corn Pop? I f- I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it's a lie. I'm just saying it doesn't ring true. But the great Corn Pop showdown of like 1960 two or something, whatever this was, I don't know. Uh, here, is, here is how it went, play clip two.
6: There's a guy named Bill Wright, Mouse, the only white guy, and he did all the pools. He was the mechanic. And I said, what am I gonna do? He said, come down here in the basement where the mechanics, where, where, where all the pool f- f- filter is. You know, the chain, there used to be a chain that went across the deep end. And he cut off a six foot length of chain, he folded up, he said, you walk out with that chain. And you walk to the car and say, You may cut me, man, but I'm gonna wrap this chain around your head. I said, You kidding me? He said, No, if you don't, don't come back. And he was right. So I walked out with the chain. And I walked up to my car. And they had, in those days, you used to remember the straight race, you'd bang them on the curb, get them rusty, put them in the rain barrel, get them rusty. And I looked at them, but I was smart then. I said, first of all, I said, when I tell you to get off the board, you get off the board, and I'll kick you out again, but I shouldn't have called you. Esther Williams, I apologize for that. I apologize, but I didn't know that apology was going to work. He said, you apologize to me? I said, I apologize for that. Not for throwing you out, but I apologize for what I said. He said, okay, close the straight razor and my heart began to beat again. I mean, Joe Biden's telling you here that he was like about to get into some
1: gang warfare kind of fight remember back in the day when to take the straight razor and make it all rusty you know is that is that a thing people make the straight razor rusty so that why, why they think they're going to give you tetanus i don't understand what this is all but again this is just this guy look he's he's just full of it man he's always been full of it it's amazing he's like i'm gonna tell you to get off the board gotta get off the board I've heard Joe Biden. He he speaks normally without any any of this intonation whatsoever. But he thought that this would go over well with his crowd. But even more than that, it's just such a weird it's such a weird story for him to tell. Um, and and I don't believe it. I mean, Joe Biden, he's walking out. Uh, he's walking to meet a guy who has a straight razor in the parking lot of a public pool. There's going to be people everywhere. And he takes a chain out with him. I mean, do you believe that Joe Biden is some kind of badass who's willing to get into You know, is this like the movie, what is it, the movie Warriors, right? Isn't that where they, the gangs in New York where they got the chains? Biden, come out to play, eh? Yeah, I don't even know what that is, but That's I haven't, from, seen, from I haven't the seen Warriors. The it's no. from Yeah. Come out yeah. to play. I just know of the movie, but I know they all carry around chains. That used yeah. to be a thing. Gang members that would carry a chain. Chain is not that good of a weapon. Unless you're
7: playing
1: Grand Theft Auto, yeah, exactly. I mean, if someone gives me the choice between a chain and a baseball bat, you go baseball bat every time. I think you go knife over chain too. Yeah, you could throw it. Yeah, you know. It reminds me how we used to think that like nunchucks were a serious weapon. They're in fact illegal because people got so scared of them from movies. They're illegal in New York, California. You cannot have it's like two pieces of metal with a string between it. That's illegal. And it's just because there were all these movies in the 70s and 80s where these gang members had, you know, nun, nunchuck, nunchuckus or numchucks or, you know, people call them different things. I believe the proper terminology is nunchuckus, but people call them numchucks. That's what uh, Michelangelo said. That's right.
7: The orange ninja turtle.
1: It's not. I mean, people saw that Bruce Lee movie and he's like hitting all these guys with, uh, no, it's not, it's not that easy, actually. You really, don't want, you really don't want to be squaring off against somebody with, with numchucks. It's not, it's not the best weapon. Not that I've been in a lot of gang fights, not gonna lie. Uh, you know, but I'm not the one sitting here like, "Hey," and then a bunch of guys said they're going to cut me with a straight razor, and I grabbed a chain, and I put on my, my leather jacket with the cut-off sleeves, I had the had my gang colors on the back, and I just went out, you know. Your next president of the United States, everybody. And this isn't from like 20 years ago. <laughs> this isn't like him talking as a youth. This is a few weeks back. This is what the Democrats. are. this is why Michael Bloomberg could get in the race, and he's at uh, you know six percent right off the bat. This is the front runner. This isn't. We're not just making fun of some like kooky candidate that nobody's you know serious about. This is the Democrat front runner. This guy. What is the? Here, here's a fun question to ask your Democrat friends. What is the big idea that Joe Biden is running with and in support of? He's just a vessel for people's wishing, longing for the Obama era. That's really it. There's not and that's not an idea. That's that's a fantasy. We're not going back to the Obama era. We're not going back to politics pre-Trump. Liberals need to get a a hold of this. They need to get an understanding of this. But I don't think it's gonna happen anytime soon. Everybody, we got our friend David Harsanyi in the mix. He is a writer at National Review. He's got a great piece up on National Review right now, anti-majoritarianism isn't un-American, although we're going to put a pin on that for one second, so I want to ask him about some of the latest and greatest. David, great to have you
0: back. Always a pleasure, thanks.
1: Uh, So we were just talking about uh, Bloomberg and and Biden. By the way, are you having as much fun with the blonde hair, straight legs, uh, and corn pop story situation as everybody
6: else?
0: I am. You know, how how it works these days is I'm not sure if things are actually true or not. I have to sort of Research to make sure that these things are actually happening, and they are—they are, they are legitimate. So I am having fun. Yet,
1: I mean, how can this guy? What is it? Why is Biden? I was just talking about this before we called you. Why is Biden the front runner? What is your take? How is this guy who's really somewhat clownish and and preposterous and not even not even entertaining clownish? What's going on?
0: Well, I, I think people envision him as a certain kind of candidate, and without really. Paying that much attention to him, uh, he's people forget he's you know he's had failed presidential candidacies and not like slightly failed but just like complete disasters before and uh, he's never been that great a politician. I think what's happened is that people are looking for for a, a candidate who can win, so some kind of moderate candidate, and he I guess fits that bill and has enough experience and name recognition that it puts him. In the lead, and people keep telling me he's going to fall apart and it's going to be over. But every poll I see, uh, you know, he seems a pretty clear front runner to me.
1: Now, Bloomberg is in at uh, I think six percent in the poll. Do you think that he shakes things up and makes anything makes any noise that's worth hearing, at least in terms of changing things around?
0: I'm not sure yet. I think that there's obviously some. I mean, it feels to me like Democrats haven't found the candidate that they're looking for, uh, someone who they feel like. Can win someone who is not too far to the left, um, you know, at least certain Democrats. So it's possible that he can take some of that, some of that away from maybe Biden or or uh, Mayor Pete or things like that. But in the end, though, I just don't, I don't think he's likable enough, and I don't think that his positions are of the moment, especially on on the left.
1: Why can't Mayor Pete get more traction?
0: I think he's actually kind of a lightweight when you really listen to him. I mean, I don't know if that's the reason. I just think maybe it's a name recognition thing, maybe it's because it looks like he's in second grade. I mean, it, you know, it could be various things that turn off people, and there's still so many people running, so you never know once Kamala Harris drops out or other people he may get, you know, that, those people might come over to him. So I, out of the people still left, I think he still has somewhat of a chance.
1: And do you think that uh, in in taverns and and local bars across the country, people are going to be pouring out some shots for the uh, the tragically ended Sestak campaign.
0: <laughs> yeah, sometimes I'm like, oh, yeah, he was running. Um, it, it's weird. I guess people have nothing to lose anymore when they run, so you get tons of people running just for maybe because they want to be VP or something like that. I mean, it's like Michael Bennett still running? I don't even know.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, by the way, what are your expectations – For the uh, IG report, as it's just now days away, I mean, I've been telling everybody that I think that there'll be some bad stuff, but it'll be just like what the bureaucracies always do, which is say, well, you know, there were some minor mistakes made, but overall, everything's fine and there's nothing really to be worried. There's no deep state. There's nothing to be worried about. What do you think?
0: I think that you're probably right. Though all the leaking going on these days, and in all the sort of preemptive defenses that are going on, it makes me think that maybe it'll you know that people are a little bit worried about what's in there. But I mean, generally you don't see the bureaucracy saying, you know, they've sort of you know, give you a pat a pat on the hand or whatever, They don't. you know, they're not going to really come out.
1: Yeah, do you remember the 500-page Horowitz report where it was I read this thing and I remember thinking, well, this is this looks terrible. I mean, this is bias everywhere. They're like, well, you know, just because you have every reason to believe somebody's biased doesn't mean their actual decision. I mean, it seemed to me that the Inspector General report set a standard where unless you have people working the DOJ who are saying, I am doing this because I think Hillary's going to be president and I want to help her, eh, there's no bias. You can't prove it.
0: Right. We can never prove, it, or it's almost impossible to prove intent, but that's why they have rules set up so that you don't even either create the impression that there's something, some bias going on or that there is bias going on. So obviously when you break those rules, you break them for a, a, a reason. When you say things, you say them for a reason. So to me, it's incredible that we keep talking about the intent rather than the professionalism of, of the agents that you're talking about.
1: Yeah, uh, there's definitely going to be a drop in the stock, in my opinion, of the, uh, the FBI and the DOJ uh, whenever, whenever this thing comes out,
0: um, it's actually terrible in in a way that Americans can't trust their institutions anymore. And it's not, you know, everyone wants to blame Trump, Trump, and Trump fans and all that stuff, but they they do most of this to themselves.
1: No, I think I think that's absolutely true. And I think as we continue to see the the Democrat uh, standard here is always Trump is destroying our institutions, and then they talk about destroying our institutions, and maybe that's actually a, a perfect place, David, to transition to your piece up in National Review. So, guys, hold one sec. We'll get into that. Global Verification Network is the only dual-certified, veteran-owned, background investigation and vetting company. They are federally certified as a veteran-owned small business and headquartered in Chicago with offices throughout the nation. Their risk mitigation experts can work with startups all the way up to Fortune 100 companies, and no data or client information is ever offshored. Unlike a lot of their competitors, Global Verification Network has all employees located throughout the United States, and they do not outsource or offshore any of the work you give them. Give Global Verification Network a call, 877-695-1179. Again, that's 877-695-1179. You can also go to mygvn.com. Again, that's mygvn.com. Global Verification Network for all your background investigation and vetting needs. Leave no stone unturned. All right, team, we're back with our friend David Harsani of National Review. He's telling us a little bit about his piece, or he's about to, Anti-Majoritarianism Isn't Un-American. David, thanks for staying with us. Oh, my pleasure. All right, so you talk here about Atlantic writer Adam Serwer's Attack on Trump supporters, essentially saying that because they want judges, for example, that will defend their rights, that that's. Not accountability to democracy. Walk us through this new trend in left-wing public intellectual thought and why it's basically crazy. But I'll let you put it in your own words.
0: Well, I, I mean, the new case against Trumpism is that that social conservatives have sold their souls so they can because they can't sell their ideas through the democratic process. They will use undemocratic means, using Donald Trump to get what they want. <laughs> this is kind of a ridiculous contention for one reason. That for, for the most, the biggest reason is that, obviously, Donald Trump was elected president. So it's not as if social conservatives haven't won anything. They ran, you know, conservatives ran the House and until recently, and they've run the Senate for years. Uh, they can win elections. They, this is all based simply on one popular vote, more th- that, that Trump never ran for that's imaginary. But more than that, they believe that anytime the court strikes down something in their favor for religious liberty or gun rights or free speech, that con- social conservatives are, are using some kind of undemocratic system. Them. Whereas Democrats, I mean, abortion, gay marriage, there's a whole list of litany of, of things in, in, in other cases that they've been upheld by the courts that they would never have had without the courts, yet they've never called those on Democratic. So I just think it's A, hypocrisy, and B, just simply untrue.
1: And, you know, yesterday we talked a little bit here about the Elizabeth Warren promise to get rid of the Electoral College. Is this just um, shameless pandering from Warren. I mean, she does a lot of that. Or, or do you think that, that she would really, if she could, would she really want to do that?
0: I 100% believe she would want to do that if she could. I mean, there are efforts underway to get a bunch of states to sign a pact to, 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 to throw away their votes to a popular vote and their electoral votes to a popular vote overall if they could. And I'm sure she would do it. I'm sure Bernie Sanders would do it. I mean, other people, obviously, I don't know if, if joe, what joe biden would do but I, I just don't understand so people tell me oh you know that's never going to happen don't worry about it you can still vote against trump well i should i take what politicians say seriously meaning they're telling me they want to overturn the system but you're telling me that's what you're telling me trump is doing but these people are openly advocating for the very same things you're telling me trump is doing that he's not so it makes no sense to me
1: now what is your what is your best case for why we should keep the electoral college by the way
0: well, because we have we have 50 different states that deserve their, you know, in a diffused democracy, deserve their own say rather than having California and New York running the country. Um... If you, had, if you had no electoral college, you know, Trump would have run a different campaign. He'd be in New York, he'd be in California, pandering to those people with more liberal kind of ideas. And we'd have two states that mattered and a bunch of states that didn't. That's not how the founders envisioned the country.
1: Well, I certainly agree with that. Um, I'm just wondering, what, what are your uh, expectations for this Wednesday's judiciary hearing and, and impeachment?
0: Oh, gosh, I don't even know. I mean, I think you're going to have a lot of the same where the press is like, you know, you can always tell where there's going to be a tweet that's just annoying and untrue when someone has to put, wow, when they first tweet, you know, these reporters now do or like three exclamation points. So you're going to get a lot of that. And then when you actually read what was said, it'll be more of the same. I just don't think anyone's mind is being changed here. I don't think presidential candidates love the idea of impeachment. And, uh, you know, how
1: how do you line this? I mean, because I. I, I agree. By the way, I, I love seeing all these, and it's fun to to guess at what some reporters are going to say about certain certain uh, you know witnesses in this impeachment thing before they even say it because it's really easy. They're like, oh my gosh, Trump, this is the final. You know, now he's gone too far, and then they end up writing it. I mean, these people have no. They're not. Not only are they bad thinkers, they have no originality, which is really really uh, pretty annoying.
0: No skeptical about anything. I mean, I understand you don't like Trump, but show some skepticism towards both sides. I mean, that's what a good reporter should be doing.
1: Yeah, that's that's been totally abandoned. I want to ask about that about that, actually, because I think that people tend to look at Trump as the the singular uh, exposure of. The media in a way that has never really been done before. I mean, I I think there's some truth to that, to be sure. He goes after them in a way publicly and has a megaphone. They're not used to anyone ever having a megaphone that can match what they can do usually on the left, right? So Trump, all of a sudden, is is a is at least able to meet them at a a pretty equivalent level in terms of how many people he can reach and, and how he doesn't have to go through them in the same way. But I also you mentioned Twitter and all the exclamation points. I think that Twitter is in a sense the the death of quote nonpartisan journalism because we just see all these journals all day long like, what do they retweet? What do they like? What do they say? I mean, it's, it's sort of like the DOJ thing where they say, well, there's lots and lots and lots of bias about the Hillary email thing, but we can't prove that any of those decisions were biased. It's just that there was people saying biased stuff. I feel like it's the same argument we get now with journalists where it's anti-Trump screeds all day in the Twitter feed, either retweeted or shared or liked or written themselves. But then when they're covering the Capitol Hill stuff, it's like, well, we're honest. We're honest brokers in this.
0: Yeah. I mean, Twitter has been a revelation in the sense of showing us what all these journalists are really like and what they think. They can't control themselves. And obviously, I don't know what that's like. I haven't had to control myself in that way for a long time. But they they simply can't not retweet things. And once Trump does, you know, start doing what he does, where he's just sort of pushes right back and says the, over-the-top stuff, they feel like now they can, you know, they don't have to pretend that they're not completely biased. I mean, CNN runs an anti-Trump organization. They have no interest in any sort of other truth. So. You know, I, I think that that's bad for the American people in a way because we don't trust journalists anymore. But in another way, at least it uh, tells us what the truth is and that we can just deal with it, deal with them uh, in a more honest way. So that's what it is.
1: David Harsanyi, everybody. He approaches lots of things with skepticism. So that's the good news. He is not easily. <laughs> he is not getting
0: uh, I'm not easily swayed. Easily
1: swayed. Anti-majoritarianism isn't un-American. That's a national review. David Harsanyi, thank you so much, sir. We'll talk to you soon. There's no question that the far left thinks it is ascendant right now in our politics, and I think that they are on some solid ground in thinking so. You've got Sanders and Warren who are socialists. They're socialists. We, we could sit around and talk about the, the nuances and the variations. They are socialists, and they are number two and three right now in all the polls. Um, and that means, by the way, if you combined their numbers, it'd probably be— meaning if one of them drops out, it's probably going to be Bernie. But who knows? Maybe it's going to be Warren. He wants to see if he can outlast the lesser socialist Elizabeth Warren. Uh, but that's that's another way of uh, looking at this so that we all understand exactly how left-wing the Democratic Party has gotten. And you even have some candidates now who are quite far left who will be running in 2020, including Mr. Jenk Uger. And I do not know if I'm pronouncing his. I pronounce his first name because he's known as Jenk. I know that that's his name. Um, I've talked to him before. U- Uger. I'm not sure if that's how you say his last name, but I'm, I'm not trying to mispronounce it. That's a that's lame. I just don't know how to say it. Um, but he's running for Congress now, and he is, as you may, some of you may know, uh, the founder of the Young Turks, which is an online, uh, probably the most far left. I mean, it's kind of like the Nation. Which is a bunch of commies uh, were to found a news an online news program. They raised a whole bunch of uh, of money from you know a left wing multi multi millionaire or billionaire recently. That that's uh, so they're very well funded socialists, which tends to be the case. Uh, people that love to benefit from the excesses of capitalism and then talk about, or rather, just benefit from capitalism, and then like to talk about how they hate capitalism. I I hope to one day be so rich that I can talk about how we shouldn't live in a society more where people can get rich. Let's close the door for everybody else. I want to be one of these rich people who's like, I don't think anybody else should be really rich, you know, and therefore I am I am justifying my richness by saying that nobody else should be rich. That would be that would be a fun, self-indulgent place to be, wouldn't it? I think there's no question about that. Uh. But the Young Turks also employ some of the nastiest, dumbest, and most vicious and stupid left-wing talking heads in in all of America. So they have that distinction. I mean, people who are just odious, odious characters, as we have discussed before on the show. Bad people. People that are unworthy of respect or real discourse. People that are deserving of—and their stupid audience, by the way, as well—deserving of opprobrium. Uh, But Jenk. Is you know he will he will engage he will debate so I, I at least uh, will give him credit for standing up and uh, being willing to exchange ideas with people on his socialism. Um, he talked about Medicare for all, for example, and here is what the progressive Democrat candidate for I don't know which district in California says about Medicare for all. Play fourteen.
5: First of all, Medicare for all, for all polls. Excellent. Second of all, when you guys say you'd lose your insurance, that is terribly wrong. You, you have insurance. Even Michael Bennett, who doesn't lose like med- private insurance. OK, but you have better insurance. Chris, you maybe. got it. no, no, not maybe. maybe. Definitely. I asked Michael Bennett, Senator Michael Bennett, who does not like Medicare for all. He said it's the Medicare for all would be the Cadillac plan. He said, yes, you get everything with Medicare for all. You get better insurance. There's no question maybe. about that.
1: Jenk doesn't understand how markets or economies work, apparently. What he's referring to here is the promise, the absurd promise, by the way, of Medicare for all. And I think this is the Bernie Sanders version. It might be the Warren version, but, you know, potato, potato, that says that everything vision, dental unit, everything would be under this Medicare. It would, in fact, be much more than Medicare. Now, keeping in mind, Medicare is the one thing that threatens to collapse our entire economy as our de- uh, debt continues to spiral out of control. But we're told let's make that a lot, a lot bigger, a lot bigger. Uh, here's the problem with having everybody on the same plan. Um, you want? Here, here, I'll give you a perfect example. Actually, I tried to make an appointment with a specialist in New York City earlier in the week. Right? Got to just tend to some uh, some buck health issue. And I was told the wait was two months. I have insurance, by the way. And this is a doctor that doesn't take insurance, but you can, of course, submit afterwards and all the rest of it. Two-month wait. And that's a, con- that's a doctor who's not even in insurance market. Just wait until you're uh, under your plan. Everybody else in the whole country is suppo- supposed to be effectively on the same plan. Do you think you're going to be able to see the doctor you want to see? No, of course not how do you determine who gets to see what doctor and when everyone's paying the same everyone's network is the same every doctor is the same this is by the way this is i mean this is like full on socialist medicine we're talking about here determining everything other than the training of doctors and the provision of me- but that'll have to they'll have to add that into this because what happens is that there are no market signals to determine whether or not somebody can see a doctor in a certain time frame there are no market signals to make that designation that determination so what does the state does so sure that they'll pay for your doctor visit just like they will in canada just like they will in the uk and you'll wait six to nine months for it maybe a year You know, what happens most of the time. People find out what the weight is, and they go see a different doctor, a doctor they don't particularly want to see. The practitioner matters. You know, this is these are goods and services. People are making decisions and determinations. The entire system gets better when good doctors are rewarded, when good doctors can charge more. Also, smarter and better people in the future will want to go into medicine because they know they can be rewarded for this. The incentive structure in the medical system is wiped out in Medicare for all. Everyone's paid the same. Everyone gets the same. Do you want do you want that to be the case? No, I want to live in a country where I can choose the doctor that I see and see him in a reasonable or her in a reasonable time frame. The only way that these systems that that do even less than Medicare for all, the only way they provide care is through rationing and weights. They tell you uh, how much you can get. They tell you when you can get it. By the way, what also will be included in this? Um, do people are, are if you want to go see a, a shrink, a psychologist, psychiatrist, uh, do you get to go every day? Uh, very, very expensive. Who's going to pay for this? How much is is determined? At some point, the reality sets in where you can't just have people getting whatever they want because if people get whatever they want. There won't be enough for people to get. Without a market in place to incentivize better, more efficient, faster care, and to bring more people into the medical system so that there is more, there are more goods and services to be distributed, this whole thing falls apart. It's going to be better than your current insurance plan. Good luck with that. The Cadillac of plans. This is, folks. This is snake oil that you are being sold. It is a lie. It is a fiction. Unless they're willing to say middle class taxes will go up dramatically, which they will have to just to make the math work. And unless they're willing to say that, yes, you will see the doctor that the government says you are allowed to see in the time frame the government determines, they are lying to you. They can point to any other major state operated medical system in the developed world and those are the realities that we are dealing with that's it so just yeah medicare for all Yes, someone's gonna pay for all your health care this is state intrusion into one-fifth one-sixth roughly of the economy in a way that will then lead to by the way further socialized industries and sectors of our economy this does not get better this only gets worse Ooh, breaking news Breaking News. You know how in the last hour of the show I said, you know, when is Kamala gonna call it quits? I think I said that, didn't I? Or I was I was at least making fun of her terrible campaign. Kamala Harris is out. It's just happened. She's out. No longer running for president. I think Bloomberg showing up and uh being ahead of her right away in the polls, I I think that was a little bit more than even her campaign could, could manage uh, to deal with. Now, that I think she's polling about, I don't know, 4 or 5% in some of the polls I've seen. That sounds about right. So, I wonder where those votes will go. Probably to Biden, but maybe not. I do think the pressure is going to really mount for Here's the way that they do it. Elizabeth Warren says that, uh, you know, well the the realistic way would be for Bernie Sanders to offer Elizabeth Warren the VP slot and then create like a socialist dynasty going forward. Um, but I don't know if Elizabeth Warren's willing to uh, accept that. So it is it is worth a well we'll we'll see how this how this plays out. Kamala Harris is out there, everybody. A campaign that the media wanted to work so badly. And there was always a media superficiality behind a lot of that. You know, they just thought that Kamala should be because they thought, yeah, Kamala should it should work for Kamala. And the reality is that she's not not a particularly talented politician, not somebody who was ready for this, not somebody who was big league enough. And also, I think Tulsi Gabbard was kind of the Kamala spoiler a little bit. I think Tulsi Gabbard got in there and made it really hard for Kamala to get any momentum you know even with the media all pushing behind her all the media efforts to do everything that they could do it was not enough it was uh, was insufficient so Kamala Harris is out as though the as though the almighty heard from buck's lips to god's ears that Kamala Harris was not going to win the presidency so today's the day that the Kamala Harris campaign calls it quits. Don't cry too much, team. It's that time of year, my friends. People are now allowed to play their Christmas music because it's post-Thanksgiving, and we know only barbarians play Christmas music before Thanksgiving. But now they're allowed, so, you know. Uh, I, I, I was telling you, I was in a, a taxi yesterday, and the guy was blasting some Christmas music, and I felt like such a Grinch because I was just like, really? Really? I'm sitting in traffic with just this, you know, I don't know. I I like Christmas music in limited doses, and I like it basically the week of Christmas. But then I'm I'm not that. But I don't know. What, what do you like? Do you like Hanukkah tunes? I, mean, I
7: think we discussed with Mark. There's maybe Two, three, three. That's right. If you count uh, Adam Sandler, maybe.
1: But so as a not as a as a non-Christian, sure. what do you think of Christmas music just as a as a genre?
7: I said, John, there are some good ones that are just good musical songs, uh, although my favorite is probably Alvin and the Chipmunks, so I don't know what that says about me.
1: There we go. So it's also the time of year you got to think about getting people presents. Now, I don't know how many are familiar with this, but there is a very fancy stationary bike company out there called Peloton or Peloton. I think it's actually just Peloton, but I like to do it the French way because it sounds fancier. Peloton released an ad just in time for people to get. I think these bikes are. I know they're many thousands of dollars. I think they run somewhere in the like ten to fifteen thousand dollar range. Very expensive. Okay, but you know when you could also just buy a bicycle or or an old I don't know or an old school stationary bike. I remember my grandfather had one at his house here in New York, and the thing looked I have like one. It was from the fifties. And you know, get on there and pedal. Yeah, go and pedal your your heart's content. But now Peloton. Is a very fancy bike. And they put out this commercial that has gotten people totally outraged. Um, I think I need to describe a little bit. So you're going to hear a female voice. And this female that is starring this commercial is aesthetically perfect. Um, <laughs> she is beautiful, she is slender, she's clearly a model and this is the commercial in this incredible house. But this woman looks like she's probably about, you know, 27 years old. I love all the ads where they got people in their 20s living in like, you know, million dollar homes because you know, who doesn't? People should have seen where I lived when I was like 28 years old. I had like three roommates living in the basement of some place in the village. Anyway, play uh, play Peloton.
0: Hey. now peloton give it up for our first time ride. Right. first ride i'm a little
6: nervous but excited let's do this five days in a row Are you surprised i am 6 a.m yay
3: rising with the sun that was totally worth it let's go great seboston 55 Jesus, my name. a year ago i didn't realize how much this would change me
1: thank you this
0: holiday give the gift of peloton
1: so the reason I mean, people have flipped out about this because you have this aesthetically, you know, physically perfect, idealized woman who's like, I'm so nervous to ride a, a stationary bike in the privacy of your own home. I mean, that's OK, I guess. But it seems uh trust me, this woman is uh, she's uh, she's worked out plenty in her day. This is not her first her first time. And then it, I don't know how much it would change me. Now what look, changed? Right. What be- changed. People are being Brandon and I are talking people are being a little sensitive about this. It is the case, and I have seen this in action once or twice in my life. It is the case where, especially as a male, if you give any kind of fitness related equipment as a Christmas gift to a female in your life, producer Brandon, this could backfire dramatically.
7: You probably would be hit.
1: With that piece of equipment, yeah, they do. They do not. It's not a thing that they get excited about. No, it's offensive. Unless she asked is it for offensive. It. I mean, it's, if somebody said, "Buck, I want I'm going to give you a do- uh, for a Christmas. Season, I'm going to give you like a dozen sessions on a personal trainer." I'd say it's fantastic. I need it.
7: I guess it's it's but different. There's, I there's mean, if, whole... you, if you know the person, perhaps, and and maybe she's. Seen the, uh, the other commercial for Peloton, and she's like, oh, I want this, I want this. And the husband gets it for her.
1: Right, if she's been explicit that she it. We need a, okay. we yeah, need that, a prequel to true. the commercial. But uh, it kind of reminds me of, of what... Uh at the wedding in the the office with where, where Jim and Pam are having their like you know the rehearsal dinner yeah and then the the Jim's two brothers stand up and they yell out to their wives you know Pam's looking good how about you ladies time <laughs> for a little mo cardio <laughs> <laughs> which is would not go over well no. I would not recommend anyone say that. To their wife or anybody, for that matter, that would not go over well. But this, this Peloton commercial got a lot of people um, really uh, agitated. I would say, and you have to—if you watch it, it makes even more sense because you're like this idealized existence. She's like, oh gosh, like my Peloton bike has changed me so much. She looks like she went from about a hundred and. Seven pounds to 107 pounds <laughs> Right in this commercial.
7: And but, who was she filming for? I, I look, the arrogance bothered me, too. As soon as she walks in the door, she's shooting a selfie of, of her talking about going on the bike. As soon as she wakes up, the camera's right in her
1: face. They're, they're, I, I, live, I will tell you, I live in a, a building here in New York where they have a, a gym in the building. And they are, in fact, uh, they do, in fact... Have a Peloton in there. So I might have to try this now just so I can give you from the front lines of Peloton. I can give you my assessment as to whether or not this is life changing. And I can use a lot of. I mean, I, I should spend an hour a day on a Peloton bike. I got to work out more.
7: It's because there's a video that you can do it with other people
1: around the world. Is that what makes it so expensive? That you can watch. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Like the cla- they have like a video and they like a video class. It like Tracks you and it's all y and things like that. I don't know. That's just kind of the. This is what the people say, but see, I I, I take the position. This is, and I know that people will say, "Oh, Bach, that's terrible." And by the way, anything that we advertise on this show as a gift, you should definitely get because they're amazing. But in my family, among the adults, you know, I still I give gifts to people that you know do work for me, people that uh, you know are in my life. That especially if people really, you know, in New York, you're superintendent of the building because everyone here, you know, lives in buildings where there tend to be a staff that takes care of the building. Um. You know, you give those people a gift for Christmas, cash usually. Uh, I do all that for sure. But among family members, I just think that there's, especially because I come from one. I'm one of four kids, and my two parents. are six of us. We, it's just such a hassle. Every god, I gotta get at least five presents. And if I if I you know uh, have a significant other, you know, um, has <laughs> you know, has been the case in the past. If I have a significant other, I gotta get that person a gift, and that one has to be expensive, of course. It's all such a hassle. Why can't we all just be together and celebrate the holiday for what it's really about? I agree. The birth of Jesus, not commercialism. Thank you very much. So, you know, I just think that that's where we should be as a society. I call it going Grinch. Do it with a smile. It's the way to go. And with that, roll call time.
2: Rock and roll, fellow patriots.
3: We made ours go up to 11.
1: It's time for roll call. It is time for roll call. Let's get into the uh, Facebook posts here and we get to it. John, Shields High, real news fan. Pocahontas said a democracy should work by popular vote, and to call her old-fashioned for thinking that way. Maybe I'm a little rusty on my history, but I don't recall America ever being a democracy where elections were, devoted by, were decided by popular vote. Well, John, it's even more interesting than that in some ways because if you go back to the origins of the concept of democracy, which we tend to find is uh, tend to think is ancient Greece. In ancient Greece, only a very small number of the actual people living in the uh, polis, in the city, in the city state, were able to vote. It's not like in ancient Athens, they walked around and, and every adult was given the right to make a determination. It was actually a very, very small group of citizens citizens who were established, who were landholders, who had. Um, some degree of sway in affairs. Uh, and it was definitely not women, and it was not slaves. There were slaves in ancient Greece, so lots of them. Um, and, uh, yeah, there was a it was a small percentage overall of the population that would have been able to vote. So it's interesting that we uh, now think of democracy as every person who is an adult gets to vote, but that's really a more modern innovation. It was not the case before. So, you know, women's suffrage did not become a thing until pretty recently. Brian writes, Buck, I enjoy your analysis and your ability to articulate. I think you may be off on a couple of predictions, though. Uh Uh-oh. First, I don't think they're going to vote to impeach for the simple fact that they don't want to risk Trump getting a fair trial. If they did, I'd almost want Republicans to go along with it so that this mess can be handled properly and watch Democrats scramble as all their dirty laundry goes on display. But with the IG report coming out, it may not be necessary. Second, I do believe Trump will go scorched earth on Democrats after the report comes out. He has said repeatedly that this should never be allowed to happen to another president. And one way to ensure that it doesn't is to hold people accountable uh, and exact harsh consequences. Trump isn't one to bluff. This will be a very interesting election year for sure. Shields high. Uh, well, Brian, we'll get to see who's right on these predictions. I'll probably have to revisit them and we'll see who's correct. I'm telling you, they're going to impeach him. But you're saying no. I'm saying yes. And then on to uh, Trump going scorched earth on Democrats after the report comes out. I don't see how that would happen. What's he going to do? He's going to fire civil service employees even after there's been an inspector general report that does not recommend their firing. I I don't know, Brian, what that accountability would even look like if Trump wanted to do it. Now, that said, I I could be wrong. It has. It has happened before. Seldom, but it has happened. So that is a a possibility that we should be aware of. Um, We'll have to take a look at it. We're looking at that, as Trump likes to say, we're looking at that. He says that about a lot of things. Hmm. Adam. Buck, pot roast, if done correctly, is amazing. Cook it low and slow. Tenderness is key. Shields high. Well, Adam, thank you so much, man, for sending that. I appreciate it. Um, and, uh, yeah, man, I will have to check out some pot roast. And next thing, we got uh, Paul. Paul. Buck, you know what strikes me as hilarious about this whole get Trump era? If they'd stuck with their very first original premise for investigation, they probably could have nailed him. Evan forgets the earliest investigations of him were for ties to organized crime. Uh, I guess they thought Russian collusion tested better. Uh, keep it up. Shield tie. All right, Paul. I mean, I don't I don't think that they're going to get Trump on anything, but I do appreciate the outside the box thinking. Um Let's see what we got here. Oh, I, wanted to, I wanted to get it. I, I tend to go to the Facebook because it's, it's easy, but I, I also want to look at what we got in the Team Buck. Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. Uh, that's the email address. You want to send things to us there. Ken writes, the Buck don't stop. Can I contribute a nightly feature to the show? A thousand things we all should know. Try these out amongst your staff and see how they like it. Yawning is caused by a warm brain only one america wait what okay thank you ken (laughs) whatever uh we got another ken a different ken um let's see friday the president declared the cartels as terror groups i suspect that trump has ordered a kind of sicario cia action with your contacts you should suss it out okay ken yeah i'll take a look i'll take a look um let's see what we get here Uh, here we go. We get next up, somebody talking about how the audio is wrong. I don't understand what we're doing differently or wrong with the audio. I don't know. I don't know. That's got to be somebody else's to look into that. Harry writes, Buck, you might want to check out the third season, fifth episode of The Crown, entitled Coup. It concerns the attempt by conservative persons to recruit Lord Mountbatten to replace Harold Wilson's socialist government after the massive devaluation of the pound and further deterioration of the British economy in 1967. I think that's the correct year. Yes, it is slow, but an interesting take on conservative socialist politics of the time. Um, By the way, I think it's hilarious. No one gets that America was nearly as socialist under uh, under FDR as the USSR during World War II. Shields high, Harry. Yeah, man, there's a lot more socialism out there than people realize. That is true. Um, Mark from New Zealand. Team Buck New Zealand in the house. Hey, Buck, Shields high from New Zealand. Been a follower since our government started contributing tens of millions of dollars in our taxes to shrillery and the Dems. Is nobody safe from the progressives? Fight for the First and Second Amendment rights. We got told regularly we have no rights, just the privilege the government allows us. Shields high. My friend Kiwi Mark from New Zealand. Um, Kyle writes, Dear Buck, don't be too eager to settle down and get married. You will turn into one of two versions of your former self. Buckless Sexton or Buck Sexless. <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, that's pretty good. Kyle. I don't know. Kyle might get uh, might get email of the day with that one. I I cannot I don't know. I can either confirm or deny because I've never been married. There's something somewhere on the internet says that I'm married. I've never been married. I don't know why this keeps this comes up sometimes. I've never been married. I don't know. Never been engaged, never been married. Uh, Hoping one day, hoping. um, Let's see what we get here. Um We have Rocky Let's "Have a happy Thanksgiving, Buck." Rocky from Nebraska. Rocky from Nebraska. Shield side. Big hug. Happy Thanksgiving to you too. Um, we get more people writing about unequal audio levels. Producer Brandon, what is this? People, we got a lot. Of, we got like ten emails about unequal audio levels. What What is going on here?
7: That I can't tell you because when I put it in, or where Mike Mark puts it in, it's all level. So. We might have to ask an engineer. Well, I need to about get it. you
1: like a special gift so that you'll actually make the audio good for the audience? So they I won't make do this it
7: anymore. perfect, just like that woman from the uh, the bike commercial.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm sure there's something we could bribe producer Brandon with so that he actually makes sure the audio is good. Then we we'll have to bribe producer Mark too, because when he comes back from the beach, but you'll notice, have you gotten any selfies of him on the beach? I have not. No. So you know, I don't, I don't think, I think producer Mark is thinking about the freedom hut enough right now. He's just, oh, look at me. I'm, you know, drinking pina coladas and getting sun and enjoying my life there's freedom to spread darn it that's right it's very important for everybody to remember that also important for you to remember your orders until next time shield's eye Black Rifle Coffee is celebrating its fifth year anniversary. So to celebrate, they started Black Rifle Friday. Look, I know it sounds like a fictional holiday, you know, like Valentine's Day, which is just a cash grab, but, you know, you wouldn't be wrong. But since it's actually Black Rifle's fifth year anniversary, and in the spirit of radical transparency, which is a thing Black Rifle's really into, Black Rifle Coffee's making an early play for your holiday spending with new products, special discounts, and extra perks for coffee club members. Not a coffee club member? No problem. Sign up and see all the great benefits you get when you belong to The most patriotic coffee club in the country. Let me tell you, I start every day with a delicious cup of Black Rifle Coffee. My favorite roast is Silencer Smooth, but I also like Freedom Blend or Caffeinated as Blank. Check them all out, they're delicious. Don't choose basic batch coffee, go with America's coffee, Black Rifle Coffee. Visit blackriflecoffee.com slash buck to get 20% off your first purchase. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Again, 20% off your first purchase, blackriflecoffee.com slash buck.